Let's open our Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, the fifth chapter, as we have just commenced a study in what is famously known as the Sermon on the Mount. This uh, sermon, made up of three chapters, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And uh, let me read for us the first five verses this morning. This is the word of God, and it reads, Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on a mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And this ends our reading of the text this morning. Our focus this morning is the meek. And we want to answer the question, what is meekness? Who are the meek? And what does such an inheritance as this consist of? <laughs> inherit the earth. What does that mean? What does that look like? Now, if you've been with us, you know that uh, Jesus provides from the start of this sermon a description of his kingdom people. This is a description of the very people of God, the redeemed, uh, sinner saved by grace, and he begins with our condition. They are poor in spirit. Now, to be poor in spirit, beloved, is to be one who says, I know I deserve nothing but the wrath of God. That essentially is what it is to be poor in spirit. To be spiritually destitute and to know it. I should say to be blessed to know it. To know that you're spiritually bankrupt. To know that you have nothing in and of yourself to offer God for the sake of salvation. Recipients of his kingdom are spiritual beggars, spiritual paupers, and those who are poor in spirit mourn over their sin. So the Beatitudes begin with the characteristics that are described in the negative. Blessed are the poor in spirit, there's the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn. You see, a sinner must be brought to the place of being poor in spirit before they can be filled with the spirit. And that same individual has, by the grace of God, wrought or built into him or her a, a deep sense of understanding with regard to his holiness and our sin, which results in mourning. A true mourning. This is an inward mourning uh, before Almighty God. And a true sense of sin always precedes the joy of salvation because when we come to understand that sin in light of the holiness of God, it drives us to the mercy of God for where we receive comfort. Not only initially at salvation, but continually as a Christian, we find comfort in the comforter the preacher of this message, Jesus Christ. Blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn because we face the holiness of God, beloved. He's brought us to the place of understanding some sense of his holiness. We've been faced with our sin head on, and we have lived to tell about it. And we say amen to that. We've lived to tell about it. Fleeing to the mercy of God finding comfort 
and the salvation that he provides. Now, this is not a people who feign some kind of piety. This is not a people who superficially hang their head low. This is a deep sense of understanding, once again, the fact that God hates sin. And in the comfort, we understand we've been delivered from it. A new people, these are, beloved, the kingdom people of God. You know, I pray for biblical mourners to fill this church. I mean, true biblical mourners, because those who mourn like this are the healthiest sheep in the flock. Mourners like this are pure worshipers because they understand something of the life application of the grace that has been granted to us in Christ. They don't just talk about it in theological terms. They have a deep sense of understanding. True mourners are quick to forgive, knowing how much they've been forgiven. Those who mourn like this are the least condemning people that you'll ever meet because they know that they deserve to be condemned. That's what it is to mourn. Mourners are the most eager servants because they, they always seem to esteem others better than themselves, knowing how unworthy they are to serve in the first place. Biblical mourners are great encouragers. Biblical mourners typically aren't your gossips. They're not slanders. And they're usually your best evangelists. Biblical mourners are also the best counselors. For they know what they've been delivered from. And they know the, de- the potential in their own flesh is to stumble continually. So again, they're the ones who experience the most comfort in the comforter. And their joy, therefore, is made full. Mourners are the most joyful Christians you'll ever meet. They're filled with joy, resting again in Christ. And then we move on to a beatitude that more fully describes the subjects of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And you're going to notice as we study the beatitudes how one beatitude feeds into the next. We have the poor in spirit, they mourn over the sin. They find comfort in Christ, the great comforter, and the product of the being poor in spirit mourning over sin is meekness. These are the subjects of the kingdom. Notice, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Now remember the scene. Jesus is uh, being followed by a mass group of people in the thousands around the area of Galilee. He's teaching. This, isn't, this is probably not one, like if you read through the Sermon on the Mount, you can read it in 15 minutes. This is not a 15-minute sermon. This is a thing that, that, that went on day after day for probably three or four days. Jesus is teaching. It's this ongoing teaching to this, this mob of people. And he's preaching, and he's teaching in the synagogues, and he's healing. The, his fame goes out throughout the land, chapter 4 tells us. And when his fame goes out throughout the land, we see that Jesus withdraws. He goes up onto a mountain, which is a rolling hill, basically. He sits down. And he teaches his disciples. So you can trust and be certain, beloved, that not a one of these people was ready or expecting to hear, blessed are the meek. Not a one of them. In this sermon, Jesus is proposing to his disciples, along with the fickle activists that were following um, in this mass crowd, that they humble themselves in the face of oppression that they humble themselves, they lower themselves in the midst of their 
circumstances. In other words, beloved, he's calling for surrender. So the messianic ambitions of this mob made no sense to these people, no doubt. Blessed are the meek. You see, beloved, the blessings of God come uh, not by way of self-will, not by way of self-assertion or aggression or envy, but in humility. Now remember, Jesus is speaking to Israel. In Israel, for years, centuries, had had suffered from foreign governments. They suffered much hardship. They suffered all kinds of oppression. So they were expecting when Messiah comes, we're going to finally be exalted. We're going to be dignified. We're going to get ours. We're going to finally get what's coming to us. And there's going to be some type of rulership involved here. We have to have some type of platform of authority. This is what they expected out of Messiah. But their idea of a kingdom was militant and materialistic. So when Jesus enters the scene, he preaches just the opposite. They're thinking that finally we're going we're gonna to prove our worth as a people. Jesus said, bless her to me. I mean, this is a revolutionary statement for which they were not prepared, and it's revolutionary because it's anti-revolutionary. They weren't ready. This shocked them. And Jesus simply ignores all of their expectations and he tears right into their heart. You know, this could be read as follows. Blessed are those who give up their perceived rights. You know, we all have perceived rights. Every one of us. And Jesus is addressing something here, beloved, that goes back to the fall. This is our attempt at preserving self. Uh, This is the protection of, of of personal rights, furthering our agendas while we justify our sins of self advancement. This is often the case with me. So, therefore, meekness is something that is fundamentally hard for us to digest. But kingdom people don't advance their own right. That's his point. But they advance the rights of Christ. We have no rights in and of ourselves as kingdom children. This is where counsel begins to break down, by the way. You do biblical counseling with people. You sit across from someone and they may have an issue or a problem. It could be with their spouse. It could be with a brother in Christ. It could be with a co-worker. And as soon as you get to the concept or idea of meekness. In other words, you're saying this, well, that person isn't here right now, so we really can't talk about them, and I can't counsel them, but I can direct you to the Word of God with what you need to do in light of the situation. And it usually is one of meekness, of humility, of submission. And that's when people respond, that's not what? That's not fair. That is not fair. I mean, this isn't right. You don't know how he treats me. You don't know what she says to me. So uh, this idea of meekness is foolish to most of us in times of uh, stress and especially temptation. So what is Jesus referring to when he says, blessed are the meek? The word meek is not a word that is common to us today. Now, if someone were to describe to you an individual and they say, I would describe him or her as, I, I, I guess, being meek. What would you think? Timid, docile, and weak. That's what I would think. 
If you, you're out on the street with me and said, I'd say this guy's meek. I'd say, oh, he's probably weak and timid. But the word translated meek here is translated a handful of times in the New Testament. We see it here in chapter 5 in our ESV is translated as meek. We see it two other times translated as being gentle, and another time as being translated as humility. And two of the times in the New Testament, it is referring to Jesus himself. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, I am gentle and what? Lowly in heart. I am gentle and lowly in heart. So the fact that Jesus is referring to himself as meek, gentle, and lowly uh, reveals for us that meekness is not weakness, as we would think it to be. When we think of Jesus as meek and mild, there's no doubt about it, but when he confronted the Pharisees, he roared like a lion. So how is meek defined? Well, the Easton Bible Dictionary defines it as follows. It says that meekness is a calm temper of mind, not easily provoked. Another leading lexicon describes it as follows. It says, quote, meekness is when a person is not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. Again, it says, meekness is when a person is not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. In other words, they're gentle, humble, and considerate. Now, this word meek speaks of humility. Uh, the Greeks used to use it uh, is a word that would describe a gentle breeze, a soothing medicine, and a, an animal from the wild that had been broken. You take two stallions, stallions and put them in a pen. Leave one to himself and break the other. They're both just as powerful, amen? But the one that has been broken is now usable, valuable, and pleasant. In other words, meekness means power under control. Power under control. No less powerful, but it is controllable now. You can put a harness on it. You can put a, a saddle on this stallion and make use of it. So how does it apply to Jesus? Because really, when you get down to it, it, it carries the idea of a broken self-will. But when we speak of Jesus, he's the creator and redeemer of all things, amen? I mean, this is our redeemer. I mean, Jesus should have some sense of self-importance. He is the second person of the Godhead. He is creator. He is the one who spoke all things into existence. But the point is this, that Jesus did have every right in having this sense of importance. But when we get to Philippians, what do we read? The verse that we all know. Philippians 2.6, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, a prerogative to be clutched at. Okay? But he made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being in the form and the likeness of men, and being found in a human form, he humbled himself by, being coming, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So, beloved, here it is. In order for meekness to truly exhibit itself, an individual must have some level or platform of power. It doesn't have to be great level. It could be a small level of some type of power that he or she chooses not to employ. 
some sense or level of power that one chooses not to employ. Now we see a beautiful portrait of meekness from the perspective of fallen humanity. And that is from King David. If you would, turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel 24. Back in the Old Testament, um, just after the book of Ruth, you should be familiar where that is, we've studied that. And if you don't know where it is, open your index and it will tell you where to go. 1 Samuel in chapter 24, I'm going to read verses 1 through 7 to begin with. Saul um, wants David dead. The Bible says, when Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David's in the wilderness of En Gedi. And then Saul took 3,000 chosen men uh, out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost part of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. And then David arose and stealthily, secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards, David's heart struck him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. So here it is, because of envy and jealousy, Saul wants David dead. You know the story. Here he goes in to relieve himself. He just kind of rest stop, if you will, inside of this cave. And David and his men are in there. So David's men say, hey, this is the green light, brother. This is the time to destroy your legitimate enemy. David sneaks up and cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. An act which marks great shame. To cut off the corner of the robe of a king was an act of shame. He would be, this to humiliate him. And then David struck. By what? Conviction. By his conscience. And then he persuades his own men not to attack. See, this is a powerful portrait of meekness because this man, David, abdicates or abandons his power, his ability, and his advantage. Notice verse 8. Afterward, David also rose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my Lord King. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed himself. He bowed his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? They're entertaining slander here. That's what Saul did. Behold, the day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave, and some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. Question, could you restrain your mind? And if you know the story of David, could you restrain your hand at this point? You say, well, perhaps. It would be hard for me to kill anybody. Could you restrain your mind at this point? Could you restrain your heart at this point? But by the grace of God, could I? Most of us in a situation like this would take the opportunity to avenge ourselves. But this man abandons 
any perceived rights that he claims as his own. Sinclair Ferguson comments on this. He says this, quote, The meek man is the one who has stood before God's judgment and abdicated all his supposed rights. He has learned in gratitude from God's grace to submit himself to the Lord and be gracious to sinners. End quote. We must never mistake meekness for weakness, beloved. Amen? David was anything but a man who was weak. David was not spineless. David was a warrior. Now that wasn't the case with David, nor was that the case with Moses. Now, do you remember Moses in in Exodus 32? Moses comes down from the mountain. He's with Almighty God. He comes down with the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments, and he sees these people dancing around this golden calf. He throws down the tablets of stone. He burns the golden calf. He grinds it up. He mixes it with water, and he makes the people drink it. Remember the story? He reprimands Aaron, and then he orders, uh, according to God, the execution of 3,000 troublemaking ringleaders. And after the judgment, the meekness of Moses is revealed. And he goes back up and intercedes on behalf of the people. His desire at this point, beloved, is to make atonement for them. You remember what God said to him earlier in that mountain experience? He goes, you know what? I'm going to wipe them all out and I'm going to start over with you. And Moses said, no, Lord, please, please don't do that. Notice in Numbers chapter 12, speaking of Moses, verse 3. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. The meekest man. Now, the context of this is very interesting. It says, Miriam and Aaron. This is his sister and his brother. Miriam and Aaron. They go before the Lord and they start complaining about uh, the authority that Moses had as a leader. And they use as a prop the fact that he had married a Cushite woman. So they start complaining with that. And then they said this, verse 2, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, Hear my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, myself, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. But not so with my servant Moses. He's faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And then the anger of the Lord was kindled, and leprosy breaks out on Miriam. Aaron, he starts complaining. He goes to Moses, please, Moses, please, Moses, please, go talk to God, please. Notice what Moses does. Verse 13. She's broken out now with leprosy. Moses cries out, oh, Lord, oh, God, please heal her, please. That is really what is at the heart of this beatitude. 
It's not weakness. It's not passivity. But rather, beloved, it is having power or some sense of authority, i.e. some right in which you deliberately choose not to spend, not to exercise, not to make use of. Now, meekness does not mean a kind of apathy or a kind of go-with-the-flow attitude, whatever comes down the pipe. Martin Lloyd-Jones comments, he says, How often is the man regarded as meek who says, Anything goes rather than to have a disagreement. The meek man is one who may so believe in standing for the truth that he'll die for it, if necessary. When we read of the lives of the martyrs, beloved, those were not weak men and they were not weak women. Those were strong men and women, but ever so meek, ever so humble. Now, this quality becomes much more clear when we observe the last beatitude, back to Matthew 5. And it's really a result of all beatitudes. In verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So verses 10 and 11 really draw out this particular spiritual nature of being meek. All kinds of people in the world suffer persecution. Amen? Not just believers. Jesus points out a persecution that is the result of righteousness. They're persecuted for righteousness' sake. So you see then, these are for the sake of God's kingdom, give up or abdicate their rights, their power, their authority. Now, who's the prime example of this, beloved? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is in Gethsemane. He was arrested. And when they're there to arrest him, you remember Peter breaks out the sword and starts fighting. He's probably wondering, why aren't you all with me? Jesus especially, why aren't you just striking people dead? Jesus said to him, Matthew 26, 53, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Now think about this for a minute. A legion is made up of 6,000 soldiers. And in Palestine, at any given time, during the time of Christ, there were never any more than four legions of soldiers in the area of Jerusalem and the surrounding regions. Right? So if you do the math, that's 24,000 legions. So Jesus goes on to declare that, look, I can have more than 12 legions, not of soldiers, but of what? Angels. At my disposal, that's over 72,000. One of which, when we read 2 Kings 19.35, one angel destroyed 185,000 soldiers. Just like that. The meekness of Jesus is revealed here through his restraint, all the while having the power, all the while having the authority to destroy, but his meekness, in his meekness, he abdicates or abandons that right. And he truly has the right. And what did he do? He submits himself to who? Sinful men, beloved. To be delivered into the hands of sinful men. And and above and beyond that, beloved, what, what was he submitting himself to? The sovereignty of the Father. 
the sovereign plan of his father. Meekness is the abdication, it is the abandonment of our rights or our perceived rights. It's the one who says, I will not stand on my own rights. I will be concerned about the cause of God, and I will let God care for me in the midst of it. Moses could have asked God to destroy those idolatrous rebels. He could have agreed with God. When he said, I'm going to destroy them and start over with you, you know, he could have said, Amen, Lord. Bunch of raucous rebels. David could have run a spear through his truly, truly an enemy. His true adversary, he could have run a spear through him, but he was convicted by the spirit of the word, by the sword of the word. And of course, Jesus could have called down 72, more than 72,000 angels. We get to Acts, Stephen, he's being stoned. He could have prayed a precatory prayer, right? Right? As he's on his knees being stoned, Father, wipe them all out. What did he pray? prayed like his Lord Jesus. Father, forgive them. Remember? So again, meekness in the Bible is not defined as weakness, but it's power under control. Compared to that which they could have done. Compared to that which we could do. So meekness is a willingness for the sake of the kingdom to Christ to, to forego or to forfeit one's rights, displaying a gentle and humble spirit, a willingness to receive uh, what the world would refer to as abuse or scorn, or you're letting yourself be a doormat. That's what the word world says. So meekness is evidenced more by what we don't do in our flesh when we really want to do it, you see. That's meekness. I mean, after all, what's harder? Is it harder to open your mouth to defend yourself or to remain quiet and let God defend you? Which is harder? Keeping your mouth closed. Very difficult. What's harder? Moving on or moving out when you're dissatisfied with your circumstances or you're under a great trial or resting in the sovereign purposes of Almighty God? Letting him bring provision in his time for his purpose and for your good. You see, this, beloved, these words, blessed are the meek, are what the first century Jew would have not expected to hear from their promised Messiah. They weren't expecting this. You know what else they weren't expecting? That the one speaking these words, the one preaching this sermon, would go on to willingly suffer the covenant curse of his people, to lay his life down on a cross. In addition to that, they weren't expecting them to say, I want you also to pick up your cross if you're going to follow me. Ten years ago, I spent over 90 days studying the Sermon on the Mount. Forwards, backwards, inside and out, back to the Old Testament, forward, through and through. It was a great blessing. It was rich. It was deep. And coming to it again ten years later, knowing that studying it in preparation to preach it, I knew I'd be shredded, dissected, and harpooned. I knew it. And it's true. Because my personality provides an easy target.
target, especially for this verse. I'm a type of person who's bold, people are authoritative. Um, I'm a fighter. Those aren't bad traits in and of themselves, by the way. But I'll tell you this, meekness does not come natural to me. You might shake your head and say, I agree with you, brother. But if you think it comes natural to you, you have deceived yourself. The point is, beloved, it comes natural to none of us. This is a grace act of God the Holy Spirit. This is a trait that is common to the kingdom people of God for which we are in desperate need of. As well as every other attribute described. Every other beatitude. Every personality trait of kingdom people that are defined through the Sermon on the Mount. This isn't you. He makes you this. And he will continue to make you this. He's continuing to make me this. Amen? Because if you're poor in spirit, you mourn over your sin, you're already in the kingdom. That's the entryway into the kingdom, being poor in spirit. And because that's your condition, he will complete the work he has begun in you. So if you sit here today going, man, I am not weak, I'm probably not saved. Oh, hold on, tiger. He'll make you meek. He'll see to it as his own. You know, we can look at the quiet, quietest, most soft-spoken, seemingly self-controlled person who sits in the corner with their hands clasped and their head down, and we think, well, they must be biblically meek. Don't fool yourself. Because in time, I have seen people who look like that explode with resentment. In envy. A false humility. A, a forged kind of meekness that eventually is exposed as a firestorm. Because deep down within was a smoldering ember. It was smoldering. Like under a blanket. And it just ignites. This is what he works out of us as he works meekness into us. And on the other hand, beloved, just because someone has a, a, a presence about them or perhaps they're kind of a loud person, it doesn't mean they're not meek. I know some pretty big personalities, strong personalities, who are the meekest Christians I've ever met in my life. It's amazing. Because meekness submits itself to Almighty God. Meekness submits itself to the authority of God. Meekness, when reveals itself when you're approached. And although you can say of yourself, yes, that is a sin of mine that is perpetuated over and over again, but meekness receives it from somebody else. You know, there's something in all of us that appeals to our flesh that loves to see, like the schoolyard bully get his, right? The guy who gets picked on in the movie, you can't wait for him to avenge himself, right? Right? I got picked on as a kid, so I grew up and I started beating up bullies. That's what I used to do in school. When you get picked on, you feel bad for people who get picked on, so uh, you pretend to be a victim, and then when the guy comes up upon you, you, you take him out. That's not right. I'm just saying, in our flesh, that's what my friend Rocco Scavoni and I used to do. <laughs> we'd go where the bullies were and, and we'd let them pick on us, and then we would turn on them. 
But see, in our flesh, that's my flesh. You, you, you want the bully to get his. And that's what we want. You see, a life of meekness, we can't live this out on our own. It's impossible. These are graces that only God can implant and work out. That's the essence of the Beatitudes. That's the essence of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is not, live this way and you shall be saved. No. The, the Sermon on the Mount is, you are saved, therefore you will be made like this. This is a description of my people, Jesus said. Because if you've never been poor in spirit, and you think that you have something to add in saving yourself, you're not in. It's only the people who know that I'm a wretched sinner, I deserve the depth of hell, but by the grace of God shall I enter into his presence. And then he works this stuff out. Can't do this What's the blessings of meekness? Notice. We just looked at the subjects of the kingdom. Now notice the blessing of the kingdom. It's the inheritance of the world. Inheritance of the world. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So Jesus goes on and, and, and grants them this additional blessing of inheritance to those that are meek. Where does this come from? It was our opening reading this morning, Psalm 37. Verse 7, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourselves over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil desires. Refrain from anger, forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. Fretting yourself tends to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant what? Peace, peace, peace. So Matthew 5 is the ultimate promise of land that was given to Abraham, who, when we get to Hebrews, we read that Abraham's true desire was a better country, that is, a heavenly one. He was looking for much more than a sliver of land, beloved. Much more. It's inheritance of the earth. Now, you sit here and you might think, wait a minute. Inheritance of the earth, that sounds very weird. Because after all, we already live on the earth, and when we die, we're going to heaven. That's what we think. So what is this inheritance of the earth? Well, it's this. Heaven is not your full biblical hope. No, that's not blasphemy. Heaven is not your full biblical hope. Your full biblical hope, my full biblical hope, is a new heaven and a new earth for which we will dwell in resurrected glorified bodies with our resurrected Lord. That's what. And that's what. So the ultimate fulfillment of this beatitude is yet future. Although we've already inherited it now. Turn, if you will, to 2 Peter chapter 3. beginning in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are there 
or the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in, in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire, dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt away, and they burn. But according to his promise, we're waiting for what, beloved? New heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is what is ultimately in, it meant by inheriting the earth. It's a new heaven. It's, it's a new earth. And what will this be like exactly? Answer, we don't quite know. The only model that we have to look at is our regu- resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. He, he, he is what we can look to for what we will be like and what the earth will eventually be like. And the only evidence that we have is him in that he, he was the same, but yet he was different. He was unrecognizable, but at the same time he was recognizable. Such will be the case with you, such will be the case with me, and this earth for which we dwell now. So this, in first in Peter, is a consummation of Christ's messianic kingdom. The curse will be reversed. A new heaven. A new earth. So this earth that we dwell now, we dwell upon now, is, is a shadow land for which that is to come below in the resurrection. This is temporal. In, in Christ, you are already an inheritor of the earth. If you're in Christ, you are an inheritor, you are a successor, you are an heir of this promised hope. You are kings now of the Lord, you are priests now of the Lord. John said in the island of Patmos, I am your brother. Right? In the tribulation and the kingdom. Kings and priests. Here and now. So while the meek are already inheritors of this earth, in this life, we must remind ourselves that our full inheritance and full reward is yet future. Amen? Remember the Corinthians? The unappreciative, carnal Corinthians. They were not meek. When Paul addressed them, they were arrogant, they were jealous, they were envious, they were arguing that, hey, I follow Paul, I've been baptized by Paul, he's the scholar. Oh yeah, well I've been baptized under Apollos, he's, he's the one that speaks with authority. And then there's a third group, well I was baptized under Peter and he actually walked with Jesus, the other two didn't. So there you go. Paul says this, Corinthians, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the what? The world. Or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. It's all yours, Corinthians, which means it's all yours, Pacific Hope Church. Now. So the truly meek are those who are always content and satisfied in Christ, the provider of all things. So it's the meek who inherit the earth because they're the ones who've been graced to see their spiritual bankruptcy that spurns on and enables a heart to grieve over sin. And as they grieve over sin and continue to grieve over sin, they're constantly finding comfort in Christ. Therefore, they're always joyful. There's that tension of mourning over sin and being forever joyful and content. Meekness does not come by trying to be meek. You will fail. That's what monks try to do. Monks go away and they're trying to be meek. It doesn't work. He makes you meek. So again, 
I begin to wrap up here. Meekness is what we don't do or could do when we want to. Keeping in mind that everything is yours now in Christ. So the reality of meekness in our lives in part can be determined by how how we answer the following questions, right? You are a kingdom people in Christ. So let's ask ourselves some questions. Number one, how do we respond when we're misrepresented? How do you respond when you're falsely accused, when you're attacked, when you're assaulted, when you're treated with disdain, or you become the victim of someone else's envy? How do you respond? Do you respond by growing in bitterness and wanting to get even? Or do you allow the circumstances for which God is in providential control of to allow godly character to be built up in and through your life? and to glorify God through your life. Listen to Hebrews 12. Consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. I've received more antagonism and hostility in 20 years from professing believers than I ever have from an unbelieving world, ever. It's not even close. That's unfortunate. Another question. When you witness a brother or sister fall into sin, do you delight to inflict further punishment? You know, kick them when they're down type of thing? Or does it create compassion in you for the sake of restoration, knowing that you are this close to falling yourself? Galatians 6, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual to restore him in a spirit of what? Meekness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Another question. When you're sinned against, is it more pleasing for you to hold a grudge within? Or is it more pleasing to forget? Colossians 3. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. Perhaps you're a wife here this morning in a miserable relationship. And for the sake of Christ, you abdicate your rights in order to be a witness. Blessed are the what? Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek. Perhaps as a wife or as a mother, you're called to display meekness in your home because you live with a husband and children who do not appreciate you seemingly whatsoever. But again, you abdicate your rights for the glory of God. Blessed are the what? Blessed are the meek. You have a right there. You're the mother but you abdicate the right for the glory of God. Perhaps you're a single woman. Perhaps you're a man who's called to work in the business world where you're taken advantage of because of your Christian faith. Because you walk the way of Christ. And, And because of your Christian standards and because of your Christian disciplines for the glory of God in Christ, it causes you to be mocked. It causes you to be ridiculed. And it causes perhaps financial loss. As the wicked 
surpass you. That's Psalm 37. Blessed are the meek. And so because Christ has worked meekness into you, you abdicate your right or you abdicate or we abdicate our perceived rights, looking out for the interests of others, that becomes a witness of those who are blessed for being meek. It's the, race of, it's the grace of God on display. And again, I want you to understand this morning, beloved, this is not a list of things to do. You can't do this. You can't go make yourself meek. Right? We're driven to the mercy of God, the comforter. And you'll see meekness. You'll experience it. The Lord is saying, look, this, these are my children, poor in spirit. I've given them the kingdom. They mourn over their sin. And in that mourning, they're comforted. They're joyfully full and therefore become meek. I give them the world. This is the law of indirection, beloved. This is an anomaly. This is a deviation from the common rule of the world. This is counterintuitive to the rationale of the world. They don't think like this. This is the way God's people think because this is what he's made us to be. By grace. Through faith. And finally, as children of God, beloved, what are we called to do? We're called to seek him, are we not? He's already found us. When we get to chapter 6, verse 33, it says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his what? And his righteousness. All these things will be added unto you. And trust me, it has much more to do with what you wear and what you eat and where you live. It has to do with the attitudes as well. Blessed are those that are meek. So may the Lord, beloved, press and impress his eternal word to your heart this morning. He'll grace you to abdicate your rights for the sake of His glory, which will manifest the meekness of Christ through you. Amen? But by grace, we steadfastly move along. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you that it's evident that I am not naturally inclined to being meek I think there's, there's not a one of us in here that is inclined to be meek in and of ourselves. So therefore, we understand our desperate need for your grace in and through our lives. Help us to understand the, the beginning parts here of this glorious sermon. So the rest of it will fit together. It is, is a glorious picture of your kingdom people. Subjects of the kingdom, inheritors of the world, inheritor of every blessing in Christ Jesus. Bless your people today, I pray. Bless us deeply, richly. Be ever thankful for our mediator and the meekest man that's ever walked the face of this earth. The God-man Christ Jesus, the redeemer of our souls, we pray in his name.